The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, London crawling to the underworld. Come out of the cupboard, all you demons and girls. Fine dining at the Impossible Cafe. Filkers drunk and cavorting on Romulan ale. A double-barreled salvo of monsters and mercenaries in mass-market paperback. Plus part 17 of the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. Coming up, we have a very fun interview with author of new contemporary fantasy novel, Wolf in Shadow. That would be John Lambshead. Monster hunting in London, it's a lot of fun, and John is a fascinating fellow with a British accent. Then it's the podcast debut of a new filk song by Bain Slushmaster General Gray Reinhardt. This is off Gray's new album, and it's great. It also mentions every alcoholic beverage in science fiction, we believe. Even if you don't normally like Filk, we think you might like this one. But who in their right mind doesn't like Filk? Then, to round it all out, we have a writing suggestion from Sarah A. Hoyt, involving your favorite coffee shop, diner, or hidden closet in the basement of your mother's house with no electricity. Before all that, Bain Associate Editor Laura Haywood Corey joins me for the news. We have an amazing assortment of new mass market paperbacks out this month from Bain Books. Mass market means the normal paperback size as opposed to trade paperbacks, which are the larger ones. And don't forget the Omnis. How could I? I've typed the dimensions up enough in tip sheets to know that by heart. They are five by seven inch trade paperbacks. Perfect for packing in three or four novels into one volume. They're um, really convenient little things. But the mass market paperbacks for July are Monster Hunter Legion by Larry Correa. Yep, this is the one where the monster hunters destroy Las Vegas. Yes, indeed. We had Larry on the podcast last time talking about this, so check it out. Also new is Michael Z. Williamson's When Diplomacy Fails. This story features the mercenaries from Ripple Creek who have to protect a politician on a planet that's in uproar. And let me guess, they hate the politician they have to protect? Of course they do, and she bears a startling resemblance to certain American politicos we know of. Anybody in particular? Well, it's pretty obvious in the book, but it's a great story about loyalty, teamwork, and there's lots of things that go boom. Mike Williamson likes those things that go boom. Yes, he does. So... There are the mass markets for July. Monster Hunter Legion and When Diplomacy Fails are now at booksellers everywhere. We're pleased to welcome John Lambshead to the podcast. Hi, John. Hello there. John Lambshead is a retired research scientist for the British Museum of Natural History. For Bain, he is the author of Swashbuckling Fantasy Lucy's Blade and co-author with David Drake of Science Fiction Adventure Into the Hinterlands. Now out at Booksellers is a new contemporary fantasy by John called Wolf in Shadow. Now, this book is set in London and its environs. The basic conceit is that there is a secret service on par with the British Security Service. This organization is known as the Commission, 
and what it handles are monster incursions. In Wolf and Shadow, we follow two stories, that of commission operative Major Jameson. Now, does he have a first name, John? No. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't find it. <laughs> I've never given him a first name. Uh, and uh, his partner is uh, his partner of a sort, Carla, who we'll talk about. Also in the mix, but not connected to the commission, at least at first, is uh, Loner Rian. Or Rian? Rian. Rian who is officially not a werewolf, but does have the tendency to change into something very like one. Uh, If it helps, you can think of her as a werewolf. Yeah. Well, somebody out there in the books, in the story, somebody out there is opening up magic portals from the other world, and there's major monster invasion underway. Uh, John, the other world, is this Irish, Nordic, a science fiction alternate universe? Can you give us an idea of of the magical rules? Yeah, it's um, Celtic. Um... It's Celtic in the broad sense of the word. The, uh, we don't know so much about Celtic religion because the Romans completely expunged it. You know, the last center of Celtic religion, the Druids, was uh, on the Isle of Mona and was destroyed by uh, Paulinus. Um, but so what we do know about Celtic beliefs has come through archaeology and also through tales from the British Celts, the Welsh and the Cornish, and the Irish. In the book, you uh, you posit some very interesting reasons why uh, why the Romans tried to expunge it because it worked, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is about um, the Romans were very tolerant of other people's religions. Um, they believed in a multi-god system, so adding another god wasn't a big deal for them. Um, there are two main exceptions to this. One with the Jews, and that wasn't really the Romans, that was the Jews themselves. Um, the Jews didn't buy into uh, the multi-god system, and they had problems with worshipping the emperor as a god. Uh, the, the other was the Druids, the Celtic Druids, and we really don't know why the Romans had such a downer on the Druids. Politics was undoubtedly part of it. The Druids weren't just priests, they were part of the ruling class of the Celtic world. But it's still very unusual. <laughs> so I decided that the Romans must have another reason for wanting to get rid of the Druids. And when you look through Roman history and Roman Gaelic history, you could come up with some kind of interesting reasons. And uh, you you uh, you give some in the book that are that are really fun. It's a it's a great just um, what if uh, as far as um, if magic worked in in the past and what. Uh, what might have applied to the fall of the Roman Empire, etc. So, yeah, I, uh, <laughs> the, the fall of the Roman Empire in the British Isles is something that absolutely fascinates archaeologists because it's the only Roman province where Roman civilization disappeared completely. Uh, and if you think of um, one of the last provinces to be added to the Roman Empire was the Kingdom of Dacia. And we still call Dacia Romania. We call it Romania because they speak a Latin language. And yet, England was one of the, what is now England, was one of the earliest provinces to be added. And yet, English culture has no Latin in it at all. Neither, incidentally, does British Celtic culture. Yeah, they, it was, uh, it, it somehow was its own place even throughout the, uh, the years of the Roman Empire. Yeah, it's, it's, it's something that's really puzzling. In England itself, um, the lowlands of the British Isles, 
Latin civilization fell completely in a way that it didn't do in what is now France, Romania, Italy, or Spain. Um, modern archaeology is fascinating, but it, it seems to show that the old story about you know the the uh, Anglo-Saxon invaders coming across in boats and pouring over the walls of the cities and putting everyone to the sword is complete nonsense. The villas and the cities were abandoned long before the Angles ever crossed the English Channel. And uh, as far as the Saxon goes, a strong suspicion now they were actually the Roman army. Hmm. Uh, well, the uh, now, Rianne in the book is related to, she has a connection to uh, a famous Celtic uh, uh, queen who is, uh, how do you say her name? Boudica. Boudica. She used to be called Boadicea, but that was a Victorian mistranslation. <laughs> well, when, did, when is she in history? She's real. Well, yeah. Boudicca is kind of fascinating because, <laughs> she's again, she's one of these things we don't understand. Uh, she was married to the tribal chief of the Iceni, and the Iceni uh, lived in what is now Norfolk. That tells you something about the English, doesn't it? Norfolk, Nordfolk. Anyway, the uh, Iceni were originally Roman allies, but um, the chief left his tribal lands as a legacy to the emperor when he died. That was not uncommon, way a sort of protection system. And um, the Romans behaved extremely badly. They uh, raped his children, his Boudicca's uh, daughters. Uh, anyway, she managed to spark off a major rebellion that in the end covered the whole of southern England. Uh, amongst other things, she burnt London to the ground. She burnt the Roman capital in England, which was Colchester, to the ground, and she burnt their other major cities, St. Albans, to the ground. The fascinating thing is that it happened at about the same time as Paulinus, with the main Roman army, was closing in on the Isle of Mona. So I put two and two together and made six and decided that they were linked. Because one of the fascinating things is that the Celts were not exactly... Um, great equal sex people um they did have queens but we don't know that Boudicca was a queen she was married to a chief but we don't know that made her a queen and so it's a bit of a mystery how on earth did this woman from Norfolk I mean Norfolk is pretty remote by southern English standards how did she manage to set off a rebellion that crossed the whole of southern England well according to you she may have had supernatural <laughs> Well, you know, <laughs> works for me. So uh, let's let's journey back to the present. One of the great strengths of Wolf and Shadow is this wonderful evocation of modern London that you give us. You show us some of the down and out neighborhoods, uh, the middle class, and and all the way to the the, the great glass structures of the banks and such. Uh, and you really give a sense of the polyglot nature of Londoners. Um, for instance, Rianne has a very noticeable Welsh accent. For instance, um, yeah, she's. Yes, she's Welsh. Uh, well, I sense a deep love of London itself there. Uh, yeah, London's <laughs> London's one of the really great cities of the world. Um, it's also, it's like ancient Rome or modern New York. It's a city where nobody who lives there actually comes from London. You know, it's a city of immigrants, basically. It's a kind of funny thing about London. First thing is it's huge. Um it's not like um, Berlin or Ro modern Rome or Madrid. London's about the same size as New York, which means it's one of the two biggest cities in the Western world. Um, and it's 
an imperial capital. Now, there's no empire anymore. The British Empire was gone before I was born. But nevertheless, London is still a global imperial capital. It's also the um, largest financial sector in the world. I mean, London trades more dollars than New York and more euros than Frankfurt. You know, it's, um, anything that happens in finance ends up in London and echoes back out of London. Sure. In particular, the east end of London, which is where the story's focused, is an absolutely fascinating place because the east end was always the poor area. Uh, east meant you were downriver, so you got the dirty water, and the prevailing winds come in from the west, so it also smelt. So all the old industry was in the east, and, it, and gradually as the ships got bigger, the London dock moved further and further east down the river. Uh, but it was, it was the part of London that was almost totally destroyed in World War II. I mean, you have to imagine an area of about a third of the size of New York flattened by bombers. Mm -hmm. Year after year of heavy bombing. And London, of course, was the first city in the world to suffer strategic bombing. That was in 1916. <laughs> and uh, it was the first city in the world to suffer strategic um, ballistic missile attack. London's pretty good at being first at things. Not always in a good way. Not always. Well, now, in the Thatcher years... Yeah. She, the, um, Hesseltine, her minister, moved the city of London, the financial sector, out of the centre of London and into these brand new towers in the East End. And there's a new airport built there right in the middle of the city. You don't find many cities with an airport in the middle. And th this is the area of Wolf and Shallow. You've still got bomb sites there. You've got ultra-modern Dubai-built residents places and exhibition centers that look as if they should come from the uh, Red Sea. <laughs> and then you've got um, uh, working class homes, and then you've got these huge towers where the world's banks are sit all have their headquarters. So you could, if you could kind of smell the money, if you see what I mean. Yeah. But you <laughs> also the have it's a, the high and the low of as, as far as the social status and, and, and wealth goes. Then. Yeah. I think something that's not quite realized in America that Across Europe, the rich are richer and the poor are poorer in Europe. You'd think it would be the other way around. You know, you think of America as sort of raw capitalism. But the nature of Europe being basically a series of small independent states leads to a greater variance in wealth distribution across regions. So West London is probably the richest region in the world. Yeah. I have it's richer per head than Manhattan. Yeah. Um, parts of East London with one of the poorest regions in the world. And you get this incredible juxtaposition of poor and the ultra-rich. So you've got the city there, the, the, which is not English, it's not even British, it's, it's global international centre. And yet down below those towers, you've still got the East End gangsters. Now this is where uh, Frankie lives as well, who bec who is uh, Rianne's landlady and later becomes her friend and, and sort of mentor. Uh, yeah, Frankie and Rianne have a kind of um, love-hate relationship. <laughs> um, I, the, the book is full of, uh, full of flawed characters. They're all flawed in different ways, and uh, there's a theme running through the book of guilt. Well, the bond between... Um... Uh, Jameson and Carla is very interesting, and it plays into the story in several ways. Do they love each other? Do they hate each other? Um, they seem to be the same sort of people at sort of base. It seems like more than a than a magical spell that's holding these two together. Yeah, something very strange has happened there. 
in fact, something strange kind of happened in real life because I, I wrote the first story I ever wrote was Lucy's Blade. I did it for Jim Bain. And right at the end of Lucy's Blade, in the bit that was set in the modern world, I needed a foil. Um, my heroine in the modern world had to make an escape with her boyfriend, an academic. I'm good at writing academics for obvious reasons. Um, write what you know, I suppose. Yeah, write about what you know. And uh, and uh, I had to invent a, a couple of enforcers for a sort of mythical outfit like just called the Commission. And they were the reinforcers were James and Carla. And they were only in the story for about one and a half pages. But I got such a strong reaction to those two characters that a bit later on, I wrote a novella, which was actually published before Lucy's Blade, that was called As Black as Hell. Because the thing is, Carla is, she's not a vampire, but you can think of her as a vampire if it helps. And Jameson is a sort of ex-army um, James Bond character. He works for the British Secret Service, the third arm, as you said. We have MI5, who are the security services, the anti-spies. Uh, we have MI6, who do the foreign spying. And then this is the third arm. Well, um, the thing is, uh, I wrote the story of Carla and Jameson because Carla is a demon, Jameson's human, and I made a throwaway line at the end of Lucy's Blade. Isn't it weird to see a demon in love with a human? And then I kind of had to justify it. <laughs> so I came up with As Black as Hell, which is really Jameson and Carla's story. And you're right, they have a very strange relationship. Um, the backstory is simply that uh, it was an experiment. The Commission was trying to use demons against demons as a weapon. So basically they uh, captured Carla, which wasn't easy, and they put her through a magic ceremony, which... Uh, Frankie carried out, and Frankie was Jameson's girlfriend at the time, which bounds uh, Carla to Jameson in a sort of love gears, which wouldn't be taken too seriously because she's a demon after all. She's not human. And uh, it, it kind of worked incredibly well, much, much better than anyone expected. And that is a problem for the commission for the future because one day Jameson's going to die. Mm-hmm. Which will either release Carla on the world or... <laughs> yeah, what will Carla do? Yeah. Um, she's much more dangerous now than ever, and she understands how the commission works. Yeah. Well, one gets the feeling that even if the gas were taken off, they might still stay together. <laughs> you get that feeling, don't you? In fact, you wonder whether it's working at all now. <laughs> yeah. uh, let's talk about Frankie. Uh, one, she's a fascinating character in the book, and she became, like we said, she became, she becomes... Rianne's uh, landlady and friend. Frankie is a modern witch. Um, now, what does it mean to be a witch in the world of Wolf and Shadow? That's a very good question. Um, the, the commission itself has never quite decided what it means. Um, one of the things I play on is it has two what you might call magical research arms. One is the coven, which is run by witches, and the other is the library which is basically run by geeks and physicists. So to the witches, magic is something that comes from the other world. To the geeks, it's a strange version of quantum mechanics that comes from the multiverse. And the same event can be described either way. Um, 
so they say you pays your money and you takes your choice. Yeah. Well, you are a scientist. I, I think you're a biologist by training. Is that? That's right. right? Yeah. Do you did you use some of that background in coming up with the with the rules of magic, the kinds of monsters that might be possible given the magical rules? What might have evolved in other world? Not overtly. Um, I've always been very interested in history, so I think that probably had a bigger influence. But on the other hand, I am. I've spent, I'm a career research scientist. I started training to be a scientist at 14 years old. The British educational system, particularly in the 60s, when I grew up, was um, highly, highly focused. And it's very different from the American one. So at 14, I stopped studying anything other than science. And uh, from then on, I was on a career path which uh, just focused me down and down and down on, on science and mathematics. And, you, you, of course, you can't switch all that off. You know, it's at the core of what I am. Sure. Yeah. Well, it sounds like that you you made up for your uh, your your education uh, in in that way by becoming an autodidact on history and and uh, uh, all things London. Yeah, because the truth is, sure. You know the old um, joke that Europeans persist in thinking of a hundred miles as a long way, and Americans persist in thinking of a hundred years as a long time. <laughs> Well, the thing is, if you're English, you can't stick a spade in the ground without digging up some history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean that quite literally. You, uh, we have laws every time you dig in foundations for a building. As soon as you hit something, you have to stop and call in the archaeologists. Um, and the reason is that you're, just to give you an example, in the last two years, uh, close to my house, which is in Kent, the oldest English kingdom, uh, they were putting in a new motel by the motorway, and they found a Roman graveyard, which was also a Saxon graveyard. Um, a little down the road, they knew there was, some, there was some disturbance, and they uncovered a burial of a young woman who had been murdered from the late Roman era. Uh, she wasn't buried in the graveyard. Her body had been got rid of. And you can weave what story oh, into this mystery. sort of thing you like. Yeah. Well, didn't they kicked up Richard the Third? The <laughs> yeah, in a parking and he was in a car park, yeah. which is <laughs> you don't get many kings buried in a car park, do you? Yeah. Well, let's talk about the construction. One of my favorite scenes in the book is the exorcism of this very bad poltergeist on a construction site, with yeah. uh, where both Frankie and Rian's, uh, Rian's ability come into play. And the scene has lots of great details about the social strata of London, who is working in construction, who the bosses are, who the foremans are. Um, is London under construction the way, say, New York is constantly under construction? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, we have a thing called the Crane Index. I, I worked in this very modern building, the Darwin Centre, and I used to look out um, to the south, across southwest London, and you could tell how the economy was doing at any one time in London by the Crane Index. I mean, basically, <laughs> London is, is a work in progress, always. Uh, the building never stops. We have Poles working on the, Polish people working on the, uh, on the construction site. Are there workers that are brought in? And do... No, uh, they're not brought in exactly. They come. Yeah. Uh, since we, we joined the European Union, in theory, any member of the European Union can work in any other member country. It's this peculiar thing. You don't think of it much in America. That if you're in Arizona, you just move, and Arizona's having a recession and California's booming, you move to California. Well, 
it was never that case in Europe, of course, because we were all different countries. Theoretically, we're now like the United States. You can move from one state to another, but it's not that easy. If you're an Italian taxi driver who wants to work in Denmark, how on earth would you go about it? Sure. You don't speak the language, the language you don't have the right license, <laughs> uh, you don't have the legal system works, and so on and so on. But England has um, a history of, of Poles living here that goes back quite a way, uh, mostly to the Second World War. I don't know whether you know, but the um, Anglo-Canadian armies that were at Normandy had a large proportion of Poles in. And after the war, they couldn't go back to Poland because it was a communist state. Mm -hmm. So they married British girls and settled in Britain. So when Poland's quite a poor country, and when it joined the European Union, many uh, Polish uh, building workers found that they could earn 10 times as much working in London as they could at home. So they tend not to be permanent residents. They come over, work, and go home with the loot. And they seem to bring some of their, uh, in, the, in Wolf and Shadow, they bring some of their beliefs with them. Yeah. And, I mean, this uh, is one of the things you'll find about London. There's something like 139 languages spoken in London schools. Well, the graveyards also um, are wonderfully evoked in Wolf and Shadow. Um, did it, are you a connoisseur of London graveyards? <laughs> Not really, but graveyards are fascinating <laughs> archaeologically. Um, it's a funny thing about graveyards, but they tell you an awful lot about the culture that puts that uh, builds them. And of course, if you're dealing in magic, somehow graveyards seem—I don't know—right. Yeah, yeah. There's some. Is it really true that that they buried uh, suspected witches uh, what, north and south instead of facing east? Uh, yeah, absolutely true. Um, th there are other things they did as well, but um, uh, witches were buried north south because you bury Christians east west. Um, the reason we bury Christians east west is because the Egyptians believed that the um, that the heaven, in modern terms, was in the west where the sun went down. The sun god Ra, yeah, uh, and <laughs> an amazing amount of modern religion, if you track it back, goes straight back to Egypt. So, uh, so yeah, so you'll find in America, I, I would imagine, if you go to Catholic graveyards, for example, I think you'll find they're buried east-west. Oh, they're buried east-west in almost all graveyards here. There's an explanation my mother gave me once of uh, of the way that. Somewhere in Revelations that we'll all rise up, uh, that, that God will come back, uh, Jesus will come back with the uh, rising of the sun, and et cetera. But I'm sure it has deep mythological uh, roots. Yeah, but, it, it does go, it, I mean, that's a modern interpretation, but it goes right back to Egypt sure. and the Bronze Age. Well, most of the, yeah, most, most Protestant graveyards in America are east-west oriented as well. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, it's, <laughs> it's amazing when you're in, if you're British and you're in America, how much of it is familiar and how much of it is, God, wow, they do that? <laughs> it's an odd, and, and it's wonderful as an American to plunge into this world in Wolf and Shadow, which is very, very English. Um, and yet, yeah, uh, you yeah. know, it's action packed. I don't want to give, I don't want to give the impression that this book is a cozy of any kind. <laughs> I mean, we've got oh, a James Bond. Isn't cozy. Yeah, he's shooting it's people. A... We're ripping monsters apart. Um, yeah. And, and, it's something that's not often realized. Um, many Americans get their view of England from Miss Marple and Agatha Christie. That, that's, it, that England never actually existed, and it certainly doesn't exist now. I mean, it, um, England's a, an ultra-modern 
North European state. Um, we have no raw materials and a very high standard of living, and we do it by value added, basically. Um, we're very, we're very um, science orientated, very high tech. Um, but we're also something else. We're quite violent as a culture. Uh, we don't we don't have guns. We don't use guns, but we use hands and fists quite a lot. Nice. And of course, we always did. If you read your Shakespeare. Sure. Sure. Well, John, what are you working on at the moment? When will I'm writing on a book? Well, I've got I've got um, as well as Wolf coming out. I've got a a book called Britannia coming out for a war game company, which, believe it or not, is the Roman invasion of Britain. I, I did so much research for Wolf, I decided to capitalize on it and write it up as a history book, popular history book. But I'm also um, doing a where, book with where is that Drake. Where is that available? Uh, that's from a company called Warlord, and you'll be able to get it off Amazon. It's um, The publisher is Osprey, who okay. do all the military history books. And uh, it, it'll be on Amazon.com. Uh, I that sort of book, bookshops that carry Osprey books. Sure, and, um, and also but, um, the uh, sequel to Into the Hinterlands. Are we going to see that? Yes, I'm working on that at the moment. In fact, I was writing it when you rang. Excellent, excellent. Uh, I'm about halfway through. Uh, that's kind of unnerving because um, I'm writing to a David Drake plan. And, uh, <laughs> you know, David is such a hero of mine. <laughs> And someone whose work I aspire to uh, emulate, that trying, that um, it's a sort of constant tick at the back of my mind: is this good mm-hmm. enough? Well, I can I can say that I know exactly how you feel because uh, I wrote uh, the Heretic last year <laughs> to I David, know. David Drake. You know Cowell. exactly what I mean, don't <laughs> That's you? That's right. You just don't want to disappoint that guy, you know. No, so. I mean <laughs> he's just so damn good that. Um, you feel you feel almost frozen um, that you will not do his work justice. Well, get through it somehow because we want to read it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm plugging away. I'm plugging away. Um, my my guess is it'll be out next year. Great, and well, then there'll be a, a final book in the trilogy. Well, the book. Right now, that's out is Wolf and Shadow, an action-packed contemporary fantasy with lots of monster hunting and fighting and a beautiful evocation of London as a backdrop. It's out now at booksellers everywhere. So thanks very much for being with us, John. My pleasure. We like to ask Bane authors for a weekly writing suggestion for our listeners. Now, this can be whatever you want, but it's usually a seed crystal for a writer to take and shape into a piece of work. The result can be a paragraph, flash fiction, a short story, or even a novel or two. The caveat is you should be able to finish this in a week. As always, listeners can post their work and discuss on the podcast forum at Bain's Bar. Today we have Sarah A. Hoyt, author of the New Shifter series entry Noah's Boy, as well as Prometheus Award-winning Darkship series books, such as Few Good Men, Darkship Thieves, and Darkship Renegade. So Sarah, can you give us a writing suggestion for the coming week? Sure, because because Noah's Boy just came out. Um, start a story in your favorite writing establishment. I mean, eating establishment. Writing establishment, too. Most writers write in diners and cafes. But start a story in your favorite dining establishment. Make the dining establishment as vivid and realistic as possible. Give us the smells and the sounds and all that. 
and then have the most unlikely thing happen. Either an alien drops in, or there's a time traveler, or there's a dragon, but something happens in this very realistic setting that is completely fantastic and out of the ordinary. Well, excellent. What should we call this exercise? The uh, Let's call it the diner exercise. <laughs> All right. Uh, Noah's Boy Diner Exercise. Well, thank you, Sarah, for that. Thank you so much. Now, here's the drinking song you've been longing to sing all your life, but maybe didn't know it. It's another great song by Gray Reinhardt, the Bain Slushmaster General. Gray is our first reader on unsolicited manuscripts here at Bain. He's also a filker of some repute, that is, a performer of music with science fiction lyrics. And this is from his upcoming album, Truth Lies and Make-Believe. This one is called Another Romulan Ale, and we think Gray has included a mention of almost every alcoholic drink in all of science fiction. You can find links to all of Gray's music at graymanwrites.com and at the podcast forum at Bain's Bar. You can get there from the podcast main page at bain.com. Here is Another Romulan Ale. People swear by mother's milk for nutrition and a buzz A nasty little throwback to the beer on earth that was and Some folks go for synthahol to avoid intoxication But they will never know the joys of my preferred libation Bring me another Romulan ale Its social lubrication leads to my inebriation And the relaxation of my inhibitions without fail I'd like another Romulan ale Bring me the brew that's bold and blue Call all the crew or just me and you For another Romulan ale You know I tried a little Tranya But it didn't have much kick And the taste of Klingon blood wine Made me very, very sick time I tried Ambrosia was a planet-scale disaster, but it still rates higher than the pan-galactic gargle blaster. Bring me another Romulan ale. Its social lubrication leads to my inebriation and the relaxation of my inhibitions without fail. I'd like another Romulan ale. It's bold and blue, call all the crew and just me and you for another Romulan Oh, when it's cold outside, it's great to have the warmth of butter beer. And I'd love to try an end draft, but you cannot get that here. And the perfect pick-me-up is a shot of Elvish Miravore. And I really feel at home whenever the fire whiskey's poor. But I'd like another Romulan its social lubrication leads to my inebriation And the relaxation of my inhibitions without fail Bring me another Romulan ale Bring me the brew that's bold and blue Call all the crew or just me and you for another Romulan ale You know sometimes it's Saurian brandy And sometimes it's Vulcan port Sometimes it's Aldebaran whiskey When you want a little snort Sometimes it's really ancient scotch that you hold in high esteem And sometimes you don't know what it is All you can say is that it's green 
But I'll take another Romulan ale It's social lubrication leads to my inebriation And the relaxation of my inhibitions without fail Bring me another Romulan ale Bring me the brew that's bold and blue Call all the crew just me and you for another Romulan ale Oh, bring me the brew that's bold and blue Call all the crew just me and you for another And now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. This portion of Shadow of Freedom is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you are not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles, including many Bane titles, when you try Audible free for 30 days. Okay, here's what has gone before. After a fierce war, Honor Harrington's star kingdom of Manticore has defeated one long-standing enemy, the Havenites, and reached a truce with another menace, the ancient aristocratic Solarian League. The Solarian League is crumbling and rebellion is brewing. Royal Manticoran Navy Admiral Michelle Hinka, Countess Goldpeak, is in command of Royal Manticoran Naval Forces in the Talbot Quadrant, where the Sallies border on the systems of Manticoran allies. Goldpeak sympathizes with the rebels, but she is also wary of a conspiracy by the shadowy Mason alignment to set Manticore and the Sallies at one another's throats. Goldpeak wants to strike at the Sallies in the cause of freedom, but she must be careful to strike in the right place. Now in the Saltash system, that chance may have arrived. With the help of Solarian battle cruisers, the governor of the system has impounded Manticoran merchant ships in a deliberate act of provocation. But in the system now is Royal Manticoran Navy Commodore Jacob Zavala, commander of a destroyer squadron led by the HMS Tristram. Zavala has called the bluff of the Sallies in the system, the die is cast, and now hell is breaking loose in the near space of the worlds of Saltash. Here is part 17 of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. I'm giving you a chance to save your people's lives, which is a hell of a lot more than he gave Commodore Chatterjee or any of our other shipmates. But that's as far as the ship goes, Admiral, and you now have 75 seconds to tell me you're going to abandon. They locked eyes, and despite her best effort... Dabroskaya couldn't convince herself he was bluffing. He might be wrong. In fact, he probably was, but he wasn't bluffing. If she didn't accept his terms, he would open a fire as soon as he was in range. But she couldn't. She simply couldn't surrender four battle cruisers to only five light cruisers. She couldn't, and not just because of Duaneus's orders— Maybe the stories about New Tuscany, even the wild rumors coming out of Spindle, were true after all. But if they were, that only made it even more imperative that the Navy draw a line somewhere, stop the chain of humiliations, and reclaim its honor. And I will be damned before I let this arrogant little prick of a captain dictate terms to me, by God, she thought harshly. No, not this time, Captain Zavala. Captain Diodoro! She never took her eyes from Zavala's face, and raised her voice enough to be sure the Manticoran could hear her. 
Yes, ma'am. We will maintain this course and acceleration. Prepare to engage the enemy, Vice Admiral Oksana Dubrovskaya said, and cut the comm connection. Well, so much for that, Jacob Zavala said, turning away as Dubrovskaya's image disappeared from his own comm. Hard to blame her in some ways, I suppose, sir, Auerbach said. Zavala arched an eyebrow at him, and the chief of staff smiled crookedly. All she can have at this point about spindle are rumors, if that. And it'd take somebody with a lot more imagination than we've seen out of any of the Solis yet to really believe five tin cans could take out four battlecruisers on the basis of rumors. For that matter, most of our officers would refuse to believe it if we were looking at it from the Solis' perspective. I mean, on the face of it, it's ridiculous. I'll grant you, it would take at least a soupçon of imagination, Zavala acknowledged. On the other hand, Dubrovskaya sure as hell knows about New Tuscany, and she ought to be asking herself just how it was we came out on top there, and she damn sure ought to be asking herself why I'd have kept right on coming if I had any doubt of my ability to take her out. You can't argue with it, sir. I'll bet you it's going to take all the Solis a while to figure it out, though. Well, this bunch of Solis had better start figuring it out in a hurry, Zavala said grimly. Point Alpha in fifteen seconds, ma'am, Abigail Hearn said quietly, looking into her plot and remembering another force of Solarian battlecruisers and the massacre of Tristram's division mates in New Tuscany. The range had dropped to 38 million kilometers, and the closing velocity was down to 23,819 kps. Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, a voice said quietly in the back of her mind. In time, their foot will slip, for their day of disaster is near and their doom is coming quickly. Abigail Hearns had always preferred the love and gentleness of the New Testament— but this was an Old Testament moment, and her eyes were intent and her hands steady on her tactical console. Stand by to engage, Naomi Kaplan replied. The Roland was the first destroyer class ever built to fire the Mark 16 dual-drive missile. That was the reason it was bigger than many Navy's light cruisers, and it was also the reason for some of the peculiarities of its design, like the reason it had only twelve missile tubes, and all of them were arranged as chase armament mounted in the hammerheads of its hull, and the reason it had so much more fire control than any other destroyer in space. It was designed to fire off-bore, spitting missiles out of its chase armament to permit all its tubes to engage targets in both of a traditional ship's broadside arcs, and its fire control redundancy was designed to let it stack salvos with staggered drive activations the same way the much larger and more powerful Saganami C-class heavy cruisers did, the Roland couldn't control as many missiles as the Saganami Sea. It was less than half the heavy cruiser's size, and there were limits in everything. But it could stack a double salvo of 24 missiles, which was better than twice Captain Kelvin Diodoro's worst-case estimate. And each of those missiles was just as deadly as anything a Saganami Sea could have fired. Missile launch! One of Diodoro's tactical techs announced suddenly, 
Multiple missile launches at 36.7 million kilometers. CIC confirms 120, repeat, 120 missiles inbound. Acceleration 46,000 gravities. Time of flight at constant acceleration 5.9 minutes. Oksana Dubrovskaya stiffened in disbelief at CIC's shocking acceleration numbers. That was 1,600 gravities lower than a javelin, but a javelin's maximum powered endurance at that rate was only three minutes, with a terminal velocity of 84,000 kps from rest and a powered envelope of only 7,575,930 kilometers. If the Mantis could maintain that excel for six minutes, they really could engage her ships at this preposterous range. That was her first thought, but an instant later, the number of missiles registered, and she paled. A hundred and twenty? That was ridiculous. No light cruiser could fire that many missiles in a single broadside. There wasn't enough hull length to mount the damned tubes. Check those numbers, she heard Diodoro snap. CIC confirms, sir. The tech's voice was hoarse but steady. Tracking's confidence is high. My God, someone murmured very quietly. Missile defense, bravo, Diodoro ordered. Missile defense, bravo, aye, sir. Bat crew Ron 491's ships altered course, turning their broadsides to face the incoming missiles to clear their missile defense systems' fields of fire. Oksana Dubrovskaya's and Kelvin Diodoro's calculations had been based on six erroneous estimates. They'd gotten one thing right when they assumed correctly that the missiles the Royal Manticoran Navy had used at New Tuscany had been fired from pods, but they'd been wrong when they assumed that only pod-launched missiles could have such extended range. And to compound that initial error— They'd assumed their counter-missiles, point defense, and electronic warfare systems were as capable as those of Manticore. Just as they'd assumed Manticore's penetration aids would be no more capable than their own, a Manticorn launch cycle of 30 seconds, and that Rolands could fire broadsides of no more than 10 missiles per ship. And, finally, they'd assumed their laser heads were heavier than anything a light cruiser could launch— it wasn't really their fault, given the inevitable slowness of interstellar communication. They had no official reports about the Battle of Spindle. They hadn't heard anything from the scattered Solarian forces, which had already encountered Manticoran warfighting technology during the course of the Star Empire's Operation Laocoon. It might not have mattered if they had. The almost inevitable reaction of the Solarian League Navy in general to the sudden revelation that it was technologically inferior to any opponent, had been a state of denial. And after so many centuries of unquestioned supremacy, it was going to take time for even the most flexible of its officers to realize just how inferior their hardware truly was. Yet without those reports, without word of what was happening in places like Nolan and Zunker, Bat Crew Ron 491's errors had been almost unavoidable which didn't make them one bit less deadly. In fact, their launch cycle estimates had been six seconds low, but that was only because Zavala's destroyers were launching stacked broadsides. The cycle time on his launches was only 18 seconds, but sequencing doubled broadsides put 36 seconds between each incoming flight of missiles. Unfortunately for Batcrew Ron 491, it also meant each of those salvos was better than twice as large as Kelvin Diodoro's worst-case estimate— the Mark 16s streaked through space, accelerating by over 450 kilometers per second every second, 
Building on their mothership's base velocity as they roared towards Vice Admiral Dabroskaya's battlecruisers. At that range, with that much time to build velocity, they would be closing at better than 180,500 kps, just over 60% of the speed of light, when they entered the Solarian's missile defense envelope and the indefatigable class's software had never been intended to deal with incoming, evading targets closing at such ridiculous velocities. Of course, that was only part of Battlecruiser Squadron 491's problems. Their halo systems are active, ma'am, Abigail Hearns announced, monitoring her displays closely. CIC doesn't see any upgrades from what we observed at Spindle. The software tweaks seem to be handling it. Good, Naomi Kaplan replied, watching her own plot, as a second wave of missile icons followed the first, 36 seconds and 30,000 kilometers behind it, and a third followed, then a fourth. In one minute and 48 seconds, Desron 301 launched 480 Mark 16s. Given the differential in powered envelope, Zavala's DDs could have fired 26 stacked broadsides, assuming they'd had anywhere near that much ammunition, before the Solarians had the range to engage it in turn, but he'd decided four, one for each of Dabroskaya's ships, should be enough to show her the error of her ways. And if it wasn't, there'd be plenty of time for additional launches to convince the surviving Solarians to see reason. Assuming there are any surviving Solarians, of course, Kaplan thought with grim, vengeful satisfaction. Batcrew-Ron 491's missile defense officers watched those impossible salvos stream towards them. Deep inside, every one of them hoped, prayed, the Manticorn missiles would go ballistic at any moment, that they'd been launched from so far out because the Mantis had panicked, or because the enemy still thought he could bluff them. But even deeper inside, they knew that hadn't happened. The only good thing about the extended range was that it gave them plenty of time to track the incoming ship killers. A missile's impeller wedge was hard to miss and impossible to disguise, and that was good because the Manti missile's sheer closing velocity was going to make them copper-plated bitches to stop. There wasn't going to be time for more than a single counter-missile launch against each ship killer, and anything the CMs missed was going to streak clear across the defensive basket and actually pass its target in only eight seconds— that meant their countermissiles needed the best targeting and tracking data they could possibly provide because each laser cluster was going to have a maximum of one shot before the ship killers overflew the squadron, and each battlecruiser could bring only 16 clusters to bear. At least they're going to be generating a lower delta V for evasions than a javelin could, ma'am. Tucker Kiernan murmured just loud enough for Dabroskaya to hear him. That should help a little. Something better. Dubrovskaya replied harshly, never looking away from the plot. Coming up on initial EW activation, now, Abigail announced. 345 seconds after launch, 35 million kilometers downrange from HMS Tristram, the electronic warfare platform seeded throughout Desron 301's lead missile salvo came to sudden life. They were carefully sequenced, the Dazzlers blowing holes in the Solarians' tracking systems, blinding them with furious strobes of interference, one thin sliver of an instant before the dragon's teeth spawned sudden shoals of false targets. It came at the worst possible moment, just as they crossed the perimeter of Vice Admiral Dabroskaya's countermissile envelope and half a heartbeat after the battlecruisers fired. Fire control lost lock, throwing the CMs back onto their rudimentary seeking systems, but those onboard seekers had lost lock as well. 
And when the Dazzlers faded, instead of 120 incoming missiles, there were over 500. Bat Kruron 491's pathetic total of 32 countermissiles managed to reacquire and kill exactly one actual ship killer, and its point defense clusters had barely seven seconds in which to try to find the 100 real laser heads buried in that blinding confusion before they reached their standoff detonation range of 30,000 kilometers. The lasers failed. The computers and human beings behind them were still fighting desperately to find their targets when a tsunami of thermonuclear explosions sent a hurricane of bomb-pumped lasers into SLNS Paladin. Missile fire had always become progressively less accurate as the target got farther away from the firing ship and light speed lag began degrading the quality of the fire control information feeding the missile's onboard computers. That creeping arthritis had thrown an even greater load onto the missile's more limited sensors and less capable computers as the range was extended, and the question of exactly when to cut the telemetry links and let the missiles look after themselves had been more of an art than a science in many ways. That was the very reason the Royal Manticoran Navy had created Apollo, and the ability to control missiles and EW platforms in real time, even when they were literally light minutes downrange, explained the deadly lethality of Manticoran multi-drive missiles. Under normal circumstances, Desron 301 could have anticipated that a significant percentage of its missiles would have lost lock, been lured aside by decoys, fooled by jamming. But the circumstances weren't normal. First, the Ghost Rider platforms virtually on top of the Solarian battlecruisers did have FTL capability, which cut the effective communications lag between the squadron and its sensors in half. Second, Zavala had known his dazzlers and dragon's teeth were going to hammer Dubrovskaya's missile defenses into ineffectuality, so his missiles hadn't been forced to engage in the last-minute evasion maneuvers normally required to squirm through the close-in fire of their target's laser clusters. They'd been able to steady down sooner, maintain lock without losing sensor contact at a critical moment, and deploy their lasing rods farther out, with more time to align themselves and stabilize before detonation. But perhaps even more importantly, the Royal Manticoran Navy had captured well over half of Sandra Crandall's fleet intact at the Battle of Spindle. They'd examined the Solarian League Navy's latest electronic warfare systems in detail. They'd analyzed their capabilities, noted their parameters and their weaknesses— Manticoran tactical officers like Abigail Hearns and Alice Gabrowski had pored over copies of the SLN's technical and tactical manuals like misers gloating over the Philosopher's Stone. They'd even been able to run captured Solarian simulations from inside the Sali's systems, doctrine, and hardware during the two-week voyage from Montana to Saltash. Bat Crew Ron 491 might as well not have had any ECM. In fact, it would have fared better if it hadn't, because its EW systems didn't fool a single incoming missile. Instead, the defenses which were supposed to protect those ships actually became homing beacons, helping their executioners find them, and the effectiveness of his squadron's fire astounded even Jacob Zavala. Shock bleached Oksana Dubrovskaya's face bone-white as hundreds of lasers ripped into Captain Borden McGillicuddy's ship. The number of missiles alone had already made a mockery of her pre-engagement calculations. Their blinding speed and the incredible power and effectiveness of the electronic warfare systems the Mark 16's onboard fusion plant made possible were even worse. She had no way of knowing her entire squadron's total defensive fire had destroyed only one ship killer, 
but she knew it hadn't stopped many, and the survivors completely ignored the decoys of her deployed halo platforms. They scorched in on Paladin, and her stomach clenched in horrified disbelief as CIC's estimate of the laser head's throughput appeared on her tactical plot sidebar. The Mark 16's original 15-megaton warhead had been more destructive than any destroyer or light cruiser missile ever previously deployed, although dealing with battlecruiser armor, as Abigail Hearns had learned aboard HMS Hexapuma in the Monica system, had pushed it to its limits. But Tristram and her sisters were equipped with the Mod G version with a 40-megaton warhead and improved gravity generators. That increased its effectiveness by a factor of over five, which made it more powerful than the brand-new trebuchet capital ship missile the Solarian League Navy had just begun to deploy. Paladin's armor had never been designed to face that sort of holocaust, and each of the 99 Mark 16s which reached attack range carried six lasing rods, 594 X-ray lasers, each more destructive than anything a Solarian ship of the wall could have thrown, stabbed out at McGillicuddy's ship. Perhaps a third of them wasted their fury on the impenetrable roof and floor of Paladin's impeller wedge, but the others didn't. They punched through the battlecruiser's sidewalls with contemptuous ease, and armor shattered as the transfer energy blew into the ship's hull. The sidewalls and the radiation shielding inside them attenuated the lasers slightly. Nothing could have stopped them, though, and 850,000 tons of battlecruiser disintegrated in an incandescent flash like the heart of a star. The entire attack, from the detonation of the first laser head to the last, took less than a second and a half. It was one terrible, blinding eruption of fury, crashing down upon its target like the fist of God. There was no time for life pods to launch, no time for small craft to escape the catastrophe. SLNS Vanquishers CIC couldn't even differentiate between the individual lasers that ripped the life out of her consort and took Paladin's entire ship's company with them. Tango 1 destroyed. Abigail Hearns heard her own voice report as the FTL Ghost Rider platforms updated her plot. Tracking on Tango 2, second salvo EW activation in 21 seconds. Raise the Vala! Oksana Dubraskaya barked. Tell him we surrender! Sir, Lieutenant Wilson said suddenly, they want to surrender. Jacob Zavala looked at Auerbach and his nostrils flared. Put them on my display, he snapped. An instant later, Vice Admiral Dubraskaya's face appeared before him. It was no longer the confident, angry face of a Solarian flag officer. It was ashen, the eyes huge. Captain... She began over the Hermes buoy's faster-than-light channel, but a wave of his hand chopped her off. You're two light minutes downrange. This link can't interface with my telemetry channels, and my birds don't have FTL links, he said sharply. My next salvo's coming in in less than ten seconds. It's already committed, and there are two more right behind it that I can't abort before they get here. Abandon immediately. Dubroskaya stared at him for one more moment, then wheeled from her own pickup. Abandon ship! she shouted. All units, abandon ship now! SLNS Inexorable was Tango 4, the last ship on Desron 301's targeting queue. She got three-quarters of her personnel into life pods before she was destroyed, and SLNS Success managed to get almost half of her people out, but only 111 of Vanquisher's 2,000 crewmen escaped. 
Vice Admiral Oksana Dubrovskaya and her staff were not among them. That was Part 17 of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to Laura Haywood Corey and March to the Stars theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Tim spanning millennium wheels of thanks to Wolf in Shadow author John Lambshead, to Sarah A. Hoyt, and to Filker Gray Reinhardt. Please join us next time at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. 